Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning back to the book of Revelation as we continue our series in the last book in the Bible. Last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. I want to look this morning at the subject matter, the curse of compromise. The curse of compromise, the church at Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 12 and we'll read down through Uh, Verse 17. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Jesus writes, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, we thank you for your love for your church and help us to understand that is truly why these letters are written because you love your church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But God, we know that you want a pure and a holy church. Father, I pray that we would represent you well in this dark and dying world. And I thank you for this church. And I pray that it would be said of us what you said at Thessalonica. You commended them for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope. God, I pray that we would live our lives in such a way and serve you that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day, we would hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we are nothing without you and can do nothing apart from you. And we trust, God, that through the power of your Spirit that you would bring fruit out of this body of believers that we would indeed glorify you and so as we read these letters may we understand the need to be strong in the Lord Father we pray for those in our church family who are going through things this weekend I think of Randy Turner and her family as they're gathered in eastern North Carolina about to say goodbye to her father as they have the funeral service after church this afternoon. We know they're hurting 
strengthen them. Others in the congregation who are walking through deep valleys, I pray that you would give them wisdom and comfort in your peace that passes all understanding. Father, thank you for the call that you have upon our lives. Now bless the teaching and the preaching of your word and give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning like I began Wednesday night. As I read this Wednesday night, I thought how well this would tie in with today. I want to begin reading a little bit out of a book by Joseph Stowell. And the book is entitled, The Trouble with Jesus. Now, this is not his conviction. Dr. Joseph Stoll is a very faithful, Bible-believing Christian. Uh, He was the seventh president at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. But I want you to listen to his words and something he has observed in America. He says, the Chicago Leadership Prayer Breakfast is an annual event held the first Friday after the week of Thanksgiving. If you work in Chicago, attending the breakfast is the religious thing to do, second only to showing up at church on Christmas and Easter. I've gone to the event for the last 15 years. I can remember the years ago, uh, years ago when the name of Jesus was freely used in prayers and sermons alike at the breakfast. And though that's been slowly changing, this year's event was marked by what seemed to be an intentional effort to eliminate references to Jesus from the platform. If it weren't for the marvelous music of the Wheaton College choirs who unashamedly sang about Jesus... The whole morning would have drifted by without the mere mention of his name. I doubt if the choir master had been required to submit the text to screen them for references to Jesus given what took place in the rest of the program. The MC opened the early morning get-together by reading an excerpt from Diane X, bestseller, A New Religious America, How a Christian Country has become the world's most religiously diverse nation. He then underscored that diversity of religion in America now demands a new paradigm regarding the expression of our faith. He called for a fresh wind of cooperation and tolerance. His words set the stage for all that was to follow. A representative of Islam chanted his prayer in the name of Allah. A woman rabbi a Catholic priest, and a minister from a characteristically liberal Protestant denomination, each led in prayer in a coordinated sequence of prayers and then finished by praying in unison. I kept waiting to hear it, but Jesus' name was not even mentioned one time. No one said that he wasn't welcome, but the message was clear. All our gods are to be equal. And when that's the agenda, the authentic Jesus is trouble. 
It's difficult to include one who is claimed to be the only way to God when a diversity of paths to God is what is being celebrated. What was unspoken in the symbolism of the prayers was made unmistakably plain in the message that followed. The rector of Trinity Church, Wall Street, New York City, was introduced as being deeply involved in the problems and ministries surrounding the disaster of September the 11th, 2001. I looked forward to what he had to say. He proved to be an excellent communicator as he charmed us with his wit and well-timed humor. We were deeply moved as he related stories of tragedy and triumph at Ground Zero. However, as his message progressed, he put into words my worst fears about post-9-11 America. In essence, he celebrated the fact that after September the 11th, a whole new sense of the importance of God had returned to America. As he put it, theology is the name of the game after 9-11, but he noted, given the broad diversity of religions in America, we now need to give up the traditions that divide those of us who believe in God. He praised the diversity the prayer segment had expressed. It was then that I began to realize why Jesus was unwelcome. He was telling us in no uncertain terms that an only way Jesus didn't fit in any longer to the new religious order. Folks, we live in a day and age where the world expects compromise. We know that there are certainly some non-essentials to life. Some areas that are up for debate and discussion. But what we learn from this passage is that there are some things that should never ever be compromised. Not at any price. Now following the pattern that we've set forth in previous weeks, I want to go by that same outline and talk first of all about the church. Pergamum would have been the next stop on the postman's delivery route as he went around to the key cities in Asia Minor. Pergamum was a very distinctive place. It was the true capital city of Asia Minor. And it had served in that capacity for over 250 years. Now the previous two cities that we've looked at, Ephesus and Smyrna, were great commercial cities. They were cities that carried on business and commerce and they had gotten quite wealthy from that. Now Pergamum was not like those cities. It was not a great business center. It was not a great center of commerce. And yet, the citizens at Pergamum tended to be very wealthy. What Pergamum was was known for was being a religious center. In fact, religion of all sorts seemed to thrive at Pergamum. They had a saying that any time some weird idea or philosophy was expelled from one area, it was sure to show up at Pergamum. That's the kind of place Pergamum was. There were four different cult groups that were active at Pergamum. 
Now Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to Caesar which they built in 29 BC and it became the capital of Caesar worship. The people of the city would offer sacrifices to him and sprinkle incense on the flame and say Caesar is Lord. Now in many of the ancient Roman cities they had to do that. It was bad enough to have to ever do it. But Robert Thomas in his commentary on the book of Revelation says what was distinctive in this regard about the city at Pergamum and the Caesar worship that went on there is that all of the citizens, Christians included, were pressured continually as a way of life constantly to go in to the the temple there to Caesar and burn incense and say Caesar is Lord. It was a city that would remind you of Athens. You'll remember Paul in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17 as he's waiting on his traveling companions to join him so they can continue in their missionary efforts. As Paul walked around the city of Athens he saw all kinds of idols. And all kinds of altars. And he noticed one altar said an altar to an unknown God. The people of Athens were so scared that maybe there was some God out there that they had forgotten to build an altar to. That they simply built an altar to an unknown God to try to cover all of their bases. Well that's how they were at Pergamum. Pergamum was also thought of as an intellectual town. It was a liberal university town where the socially elite dwelt. They viewed themselves as the progressive educated folks in the ancient world. They hosted a library there of 200,000 volumes second only to Alexandria, Egypt. In fact, Egypt was so jealous of Pergamum that they cut off shipments of papyrus to Pergamum, forcing them to develop some other kind of writing material. And so at Pergamum, they developed parchment, a kind of writing material made out of animal skins. Still today, when somebody graduates from college, what do we say that they get to hang on their wall? They get a sheepskin, their diploma. That goes all the way back to the days of Pergamum. The library at Pergamum eventually was sent to Egypt as a gift from Anthony to Cleopatra. But folks, I want you to notice how Jesus addresses the church there. He addresses them as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now the sword in ancient times was a symbol of authority. And again, Pergamum was the capital city of that whole region of Asia Minor. And so Rome had given to Pergamum the authority of even capital punishment. When court cases would, well, from around Asia Minor would end up there in Pergamum, some of the more serious cases at Pergamum, the, the judges there and the courts there had the authority to even Uh, execute or carry through on the death penalty. But Jesus in, in writing to the church there in that place of authority said to the Christians, now I want you to understand who the real authority is. 
Jesus Christ is the real authority. He's called us to live in this world and we've got to be citizens of this world and we're to be good citizens as many places in the word of God talk about. We're to be good citizens and good examples but we need to understand who the true authority is. The true authority of our lives is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he talks about the sharp two-edged sword we're reminded of the word of God and the double nature that the word of God has to it. See, on the one hand, as the gospel is preached, if you respond to the preaching of the gospel with faith and repentance, then you're blessed. Because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you're born again, you become an adopted child of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, if you reject the message of Jesus Christ, then his word becomes to you a word of judgment. So God's word has that double sided nature to it. Either it will be a blessing to your life and bring life, bring abundant life and bring, uh, bring eternal life or it will bring judgment. But it's God and his word that is the real authority of our lives. And that's what he's emphasizing to them at Pergamum. He's the real authority. Well, secondly, I want you to notice his commendation of them. In verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, Antipas my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. His commendation is a word of encouragement. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Jesus says it's not only your capital city, but it's the headquarters, if you will, of Satan. You're the seat of authority in that whole country, in that whole region. But Satan has his base of operations there too. Folks, we need to be reminded of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we battle not simply against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers in high places. There's an unseen spiritual world out there. And what would you do if you were Satan? If you were Satan, you would probably go to some of these power centers around the world. Some of these places of authority. Maybe Washington, D.C. Or, or other key cities around the world where major decisions are being made and governing people and policies being put forth that govern a whole region or a whole country. If you were the devil, you would, you would make sure that you were represented in places like that and that's what he's saying to them you dwell where Satan dwells it may be the place where the governing authorities dwell where they have their offices where they conduct their governmental affairs but it is also the place where the devil is very much at work and I know that you as the church have to dwell right there in the midst of them it's a word of encouragement that God understands sometimes what we are up against. God knows our circumstances. God knows our setting. 
You may say, Pastor, you don't understand where I have to work. You don't understand the antagonism against Christian faith. You don't understand what it's like in my school. You don't understand what it's like in my family, the way my husband or my wife opposes me because of my faith. You don't know what I'm up against. And that's true. I may not know what you're up against. But there is somebody that does know. Amen? He understands. He says, I know where you dwell. I know you dwell where Satan dwells. God knows where he has placed us. If he placed us in settings that were easy, then where would the need for our Christian witness be? Sometimes he places us in circles that are very difficult because in that arena we're to act as salt and light and we're to stand up for Jesus Christ. And if we don't, maybe nobody else will. He places us where we're supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. He wanted them to be ambassadors for Christ there in that town. And he encourages them that he knows about their setting. In fact, Jesus said uh, in the Gospel of Matthew that he knows everything about us. He knows even the very hairs on our head. He knows everything you're up against today. Not only a word of encouragement, but also a word of approval. He said, you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. They've remained steadfast and faithful in a pagan world. Now for the most part, the church there had been loyal to the person of Christ. Even though it was the place where Satan had his throne, they were loyal and they've watched one of their leaders be put to death, Antipas was apparently one of their spiritual leaders. And his name is probably very significant. The name Antipas literally meant against all. He had stood against all of the pluralism and all of the paganism in that place and he had faithfully led the church there at Pergamum to the point that it had even cost him His very life. Their spiritual leader gave his life for the sake of the gospel. And they witnessed that at Pergamum. And yet despite that, they had determined in their hearts that they would deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow after Jesus Christ. They would be faithful. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I need to be reminded of the fact that it's not simply talent or ability that God is looking for. He's looking for faithfulness. He gives us all different talents and abilities, different spiritual gifts. He doesn't put on one what he necessarily expects of another in that parable of the talents where one guy got five, another two, another one. He didn't expect the guy with one talent or two talents to do what the guy with five had. They were to all be faithful with what they had been given. God respected their abilities. But it was faithfulness that counted. 
And let us be reminded today of whatever our place in the body of Christ is, wherever we serve, the one thing chiefly that God is looking for is faithfulness. Are we faithful? He commends them at Pergamum for being faithful. But thirdly, I want you to notice the condemnation. Pick up reading with me in verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now what's the condemnation? What's the accusation? What are they guilty of at Pergamum? They're guilty of compromise. Folks, this letter makes it clear compromise is deadly to a church and if not repented of, it'll bring the judgment of Christ just as surely as will unbelief. Compromise is a subtle evil. There are Christians who would never ever dream of denying Jesus but then they'll turn right around and oftentimes they'll compromise on issues and end up weakening their Christian testimony. Satan knows if he cannot stop the truth from penetrating a heart he can work on that heart in the the matter of compromise and what ends up happening is he robs the power of the gospel in that person's life. Jesus talked about this danger in the parable of the soils where the farmer went out to sow the seed which was, uh, he, the seed represented the word of God and the different kinds of soil, the type of human heart that the seed of the word of God falls into. And that third kind of soil was the soil with weeds and thorns and Jesus defined He defined what he meant by the weeds and the thorns. That the weeds and the thorns were all the cares of this life and and all the deceitfulness of riches. All the things that come crowding into our life that, that cause us to end up compromising the gospel. It's a danger. One of the saddest stories of compromise, I think, in the New Testament is is the case of Demas. Demas was one of the Apostle Paul's traveling companions. Could you imagine being one of Paul's traveling companions? What a blessing that... Here's a guy that God used to write most of our New Testament. Missionary par excellence of all times who went around planting churches, strengthening churches and you're a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul and you get to witness firsthand all the mighty deeds that God did through this man's life. And yet there at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy chapter 4 he, he's writing to Timothy and he's saying come to me quickly before winter. He's in a cold, dark, damp dungeon. And this time Paul's going to end up dying for the faith. He wants Timothy to show up before winter, bring a coat, and and bring the scriptures. And and he says to Timothy, Timothy, nobody, nobody but Luke's with me anymore. Everybody has departed from me. They've abandoned me. And he cites Demas. He says, Demas, having loved this present world more has turned back to the world. Now what a sad testimony of somebody's life. 
compromise. And that's what they're doing at Pergamum. And he mentions two, two kinds of compromise. First of all, compromise after the way of Balaam. Now you may remember the story of Balaam occupies a significant portion of the book of Numbers. Balak, the king of Moab, or Moab, he hired Balaam to curse the children of Israel. Balaam was a prophet. Why in the world would Balaam put himself in that position? But he did. He allowed himself to be hired by a pagan king to curse the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt and they're wandering through the wilderness and they're on their way to the promised land and they're passing by the region of the Moabites. Balak says to Balaam, I want you to go out and, and curse the children of Israel. And every time he went out to curse the children of Israel, God wouldn't let him. Instead, he issued a blessing to him instead. Balak said, what are you doing, Balaam? I hired you to offer a curse. And every time you open your mouth, you're giving a blessing instead. Now you'll remember what Balaam ended up doing, though, when he couldn't curse them. He said, just have your kids intermarry with their kids. And over time, the Hebrews and their faith in Jehovah God their, their culture and their religion will just get all watered down. Instead of being the chosen people of God that God delivered out of Egypt to take into the promised land and, and be salt and light to the nations around them, he said, you'll just kind of end up watering them down because as your kids intermarry with their kids, the, those other pagan kids bring all their religion in and there's, they'll end up nothing distinctive about the faith of the Hebrews. That was the advice he gave them. Can't tell you the number of times as a pastor. Nine out of ten times it's a woman. Every now and then it's a man. But nine out of ten times it's a woman. Comes into my office crying buckets of tears. Pastor, my mom and dad told me not to marry him. My friends told me not to marry him. He wasn't, a, he wasn't a believer. Pastor, I knew as a Christian girl I shouldn't marry him. But you know what, Pastor? I thought if I married him, I could change him. He promised me if I'd marry him, he'd start going to church with me. If we had kids, he'd, take, he'd go with me and take the kids to church. Well, I married him. We've had kids. He'd never been to church with us. And now he's cheating on me. He's doing all these kind of things at the office. I hear about this. I thought I could change him. And what happens? Usually it's not the believer lifting up the unbeliever, but so oftentimes it's the unbeliever who pulls down the believer. Compromise. That's why Paul said in the New Testament, don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. I think of a, the prime case in the Old Testament of, of compromise was Samson. Samson, as a Jewish boy, was supposed to marry a Jewish girl, and yet he set his affections on a Philistine girl. And his parents said, Son, no, we'll get a, we'll get a daughter from you among our people. And he said, No, I want her, get her. And they did. And it was disastrous. 
Then after that marriage dissolved, we read of Samson next going into a prostitute. And then after the prostitute, he's marrying Delilah. And we all know the story of Delilah and what happened there. She conned him to give him up the secrets of his strength. They came in, cut his hair, his strength was gone. They gouged out his eyes. And Samson ended up being a grinder in a Philistine meal or prison. A guy in the Old Testament had more potential than just about anybody you could read about. And yet he ends up blinded. Serving as basically a grinder, a pack mule, if you will. Grinding out grain in a Philistine prison. What a sad story the story of Samson is. But it's a story of compromise. And Jesus said to the church at Pergamum, that's exactly what's beginning to happen to you. Your church is crumbling from within. There are all these little compromises taking place in a pluralistic culture and some of your people are kind of beginning to go that way. And when the devil can't weaken you from without, he just kind of gets you from within. That was happening. Slippery slope had begun. Also a compromise after the way of the Nicolaitans. Verse 15, one of the early church fathers named Irenaeus writes that Nicholas who was a deacon from Acts chapter 6 was a false believer and like Balaam he ended up leading the people, the Christians away into immorality and wickedness. Another church father, Clement of Alexander, says they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats. Like a bunch of animals. You say, how in the world did that happen? Well, from church history, we know what Nicholas and others did. They told the church, they said, you know what? Since you're saved by grace... Just go out and live any way you want to. The more you sin, the more you'll experience the grace of God because the more you sin, there's going to be more need for the grace of God to operate in your life. So just go out, leap into sin and love it. You remember Paul wrote about this in in the beginning of Romans, the end of Romans chapter 5, beginning of Romans chapter 6, he said, should we abound in sin? So that grace may abound. And he said in some of the strongest language in the Greek New Testament. God forbid. Don't you understand? If you've come to Christ. You've died with Christ. Been raised up with Christ. And so the only fitting attitude for a child of God is. That you yield the members of your body as members of righteousness to glorify God. In fact, John writing in 1 John says, a believer who confesses Jesus with his mouth then goes out and sees how much sin he can get into probably is not even a Christian to begin with. He says, if we walk in the darkness and continue to walk in the darkness, God's light, but if we say with our lips that we know him and yet walk in the darkness, we don't even know him. Somebody says, I'm a Christian, I can live any way I want to now. Hey, after all, you know, I'll just sin and sin and sin. I'm forgiven, it's okay. Doesn't even understand the doctrine 
uh, of redemption and what redemption is all about. In redemption, we're changed from the inside out. We don't even have a desire to go out in the world and live like we used to. That ought, to be, that ought to be a wake-up call uh, to those in the church. If we don't even hunger for the things of God, we do, there's no hunger or thirst for the things of God. We don't hunger for the Word of God and, and for the ministry uh, of the gospel and for evangelism and missions and discipleship. And if we don't love one another, if we're not a changed group of people, redemption has not even happened in your heart. Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. But again, the Nicolaitans were saying, just go out and live any way you want to. It's okay. It's also believed they're the first group that started making a distinction between the clergy and the laity. Everybody knows a pastor or a deacon or Sunday school teacher or somebody like that. That's supposed to, supposed to be an example and live a holy life. They said, yeah, true, but just let the laity do anything they want. The Bible never creates that two-tiered approach to discipleship in fact in 1 Peter chapter 1 it says we're all to be holy because he's holy and yet they were creating this distinction and God said I, I hate the work of the Nicolaitans I hate it now what's the challenge verses 16 and 17 first challenge is to what? repent there's only one challenge when a person's life starts going down the twisting downhill slope of compromise. We're to repent. I want you to notice verse 15. The Lord said, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Some, not all. And yet when the Lord called for repentance, he called for a wholesale repentance on the part of everybody. Now folks, stay with me here a minute. Don't miss this. He said, some in your church are going the way of Balaam and going the way of the Nicolaitans. Some, some, not all, some. But then he chastised them because they all collectively tolerated it. What do Christians say today? There's some Christian, so-called Christian groups promoting this or that, alternative lifestyles or whatever it might be. And we say, you know, that, that's not, a, I don't believe in that, but you know what, just kind of live and let live. That's them over there. Doesn't affect us. But the Lord said to his church, all of you need to repent of that. Instead of this attitude, all just let's live and let live. That's why the New Testament talks about discipline in a church body. Where there is known unrepented of sin, the church body is to get together and practice discipline. And, and God said to the Corinthians, I'm going to judge you if you won't judge yourselves. Would you rather judge yourself or would you rather God have to come in and judge you? Be better to judge ourselves. And so only some were guilty, but he called on all to repent and not be tolerant. 
Interesting, isn't it? And not only all to repent, but he said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. We're not just to listen to God's word with our ears and let it go in one ear and out the other. We're to build our lives on it. God's word is to, is to change us. We're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now folks, as we think about these letters, each of these letters and what each letter is communicating to the church today, what's the letter to Pergamum saying to a modern day believer today? October 21st, 2012. What in the world does an ancient letter written to the church at Pergamum have to say to me today? It points out the curse of compromise. Have I begun to compromise with the pluralistic age? Am I guilty? What's the challenge? Or what's the promise he ends on? A beautiful promise that he ends on? That if you will repent and live a life of no compromise, he said, I'll give you some of the hidden manna. Remember what the manna was? The manna in the wilderness God fed them with? What's God saying to the church? You know, today you feel like, man, if I live a life of no compromise, I'll lose everything. I mean, how could I even live in a world today without compromise? If I live a life of no compromise, I might just lose everything. And God assures us, don't you worry about that. I will provide for your needs just like I did Israel in the wilderness. I will give you of the hidden manna. If you lose the world, I'll give of you the hidden manna. Remember what Peter said one time? He said, Lord, what's going to happen to us? We have left family and, and all to follow you. And Jesus said, I tell you what, you'll receive hundredfold more anything you've ever lost for my name's sake. I'll give back to you in other ways. Amen? Isn't that great? You might lose some things in the world by not compromising. You might lose a few friends who don't understand a dedicated Christian life. But guess what? You'll end up with better friends. Christian friends. And not only the hidden manna, but he goes on to say a white stone. I'll give you a white stone with a a name on it, known only to you. Remember at Pergamum, they were the seat of authority. And in their court cases, the juries, what they would do, if you were guilty, they would throw in a black stone, symbolizing they thought you were guilty, and they'd count the stones up. Or they'd throw in a white stone if they thought you were innocent and needed to be acquitted. God's saying you live a life of no compromise and I'll declare you innocent, the white stone. And not only the white stone that you're innocent of the compromise that others in your church are guilty of, not only will you be innocent of that and of the judgment I'm going to bring against them, but that stone will have a name on it, known only to you. 
signifying God knows us each individually. He knows your heart, my heart. And if you're standing true to the gospel, no compromise, guess what? He knows that. He knows what each person's heart is like. And he rewards us. Would you bow with me this morning, please? I simply want to ask you to evaluate where you stand on this matter of compromise. How much of a friend of the world are you? Remember what James said? James said in James chapter 4 that if you are the friend of the world, you are the enemy of God. Do you want to be the enemy of God? Of course not. Well, the Bible says don't be a friend of the world. If you're a friend of the world, you're God's enemy. Are you willing to take a stand for Christ? We, we live in a very tolerant society. It says be open-minded, live and let live. But are you willing to build your life on the principles of God's word? Maybe right now you would evaluate this morning, this week, where some of those areas of compromise might be in your life. Ask God to come in and deal with those areas of compromise. Because if not, it'll invite God's judgment. Father, speak to your people. Speak to each of us about the need... To stand strong in very trying days. Even if the world doesn't understand. We need to be concerned about pleasing you. And standing clean and pure and holy before the judgment seat of Christ. Ultimately, that's what will matter. So help us to live in such a way that in that day we would hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning our hymn of invitation is going to be on the screens behind me. I I wonder if I'm speaking to somebody that needs to come forward this morning and in a public way confess Jesus Christ as Lord. You've never taken a courageous stand for Christ. Maybe you've invited him into your heart some time in the past. You've been a secret disciple. You need to make it public. Others that maybe want to come and be a part of a church where we can pray for you and you can pray for us. We need each other. You come forward as well. Perhaps others that either at the altar or just right there where you're standing at your pew. You want to let the Holy Spirit send His searchlight down on your heart and point out any areas of compromise that need to change.